Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne, 11 is the Cologne number par excellence. 11 tiers adorn our city coat of arms. At 11.11 a.m., the carnival begins on November 11th. At each carnival session, the so-called group of 11 is in charge. And otherwise, all events in the Cologne carnival itself begin 11 minutes past the hour. Well, okay, let's hit the intro. Was that an end in the last episode? Our beloved Cologne fell victim to a small army of barbarian Franks in the year 355. How this could happen we had already talked about, but how the city itself was then conquered we have not yet discussed. There are still many questions which we hope to be able to answer. First of all, one thing is special. Cologne is not attacked by the Franks like other cities and then merely plundered, no, this time Cologne is occupied by the Franks, in the classic manner, so to speak. But first of all, one after the other. The question that is a burning issue, how exactly was Cologne conquered? The city had a great and mighty stone wall. Well, the answer to this question you can certainly guess we don't know exactly. But roughly, we can draw some conclusions to bring light into the dark. One way the Franks could have conquered Cologne would have been a protracted siege. But this could hardly have been the case, for we know only too well that only two months after the assassination of Sylvanus in Cologne, the Franks conquered the city. To starve a city like Cologne would have taken much longer. The Franks themselves also want to make fast loot, so the other variant is more likely, namely that the city was taken by storm. But weren't there any troops in Cologne who would have defended the city? I told you myself that 40 years earlier Emperor Constantine the Great even had a fort built there specially for that. Well, the largest part of the troops was probably taken by the group around Amianus Marcellinus and his commanders to fight against further incursions in Gaul. In any case, Marcellinus was no longer present in Cologne when the Franks conquered the city. Otherwise, he would surely have told about it as a quasi-personally affected person. Due to the withdrawal of the troops, there must probably not have been enough soldiers to occupy the wall sufficiently and thus defend the city. The male citizens of Cologne who had been hastily recruited to defend the city certainly had little chance against battle-hardened Franks. This is where archaeology helps us, which gives us indications that the city was taken by storm. Whether now a part of the wall was broken through or was overcome with ladders cannot be judged conclusively. Nevertheless, some destruction will have swept over the city. This is shown by several burn marks on the remains of buildings from this time. And here we should pause for a moment. I had withheld it from you at that time. Why this great Dionysus mosaic has survived so intact to this day. The very mosaic that we saw in the dining room of the large estate in the north of Roman Cologne in our imaginary tour of the city. The very mosaic that we saw in the dining room of the large estate in the north of Roman Cologne in our imaginary tour of the city. 
Well, the year 355 was a great misfortune for the then owner. Maybe he himself died during these events, or maybe he had already fled the city before like many rich Romans, before the Franks had conquered the city. But now, here in the year 355, the estate is plundered and set on fire. Surely the looters will have taken everything valuable that could be taken away. Such a huge mosaic on the floor with millions of small stones naturally did not fall into this category. But this is how a fortune in a misfortune happened for us as future generations. When the roof truss of the house burned down, the falling debris probably crashed onto the mosaic and buried it under a heavy layer of rubble. When after the first lootings, the cleanup work began, the house was not rebuilt but new ones were built on the rubble itself. Thus, the mosaic sank deeper and deeper into the earth over the course of time, as each era, each new building, placed another new protective layer on this mosaic. But yes, this is how the mosaic survived the time, luckily for us, in the 20th century, but also an expression of the great misfortune that befell the city in 355. And the state in which the mosaic was located was probably not the only one to suffer such a fate. I myself was only allowed to see well-preserved painted Roman house walls of residential buildings a few weeks ago in the archaeological excavation site under Cologne Cathedral. Their history also ends abruptly in the year 355. Directly above it, you can see the buildings that followed and now the Cologne Cathedral itself stands above it. I'm not an archaeologist myself, but I'm glad that I was pointed this out during my visit to the archaeological site on the Cologne Cathedral. I would only have seen a pile of stones there and not recognized their important historical significance. You know what I'm going to say now. I will post pictures of all this in the companion post of this episode on thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com. A large massacre of the city population by the Franks certainly did not occur. Even though the Romans called them barbarians, the Franks were out for treasures and loot. Of course, this is not to trivialize anything here. In the first moments of the conquest of Cologne, blood will certainly have been shed. Many innocent or defenseless people will have suffered violence and inhuman and despicable things which will always happen in looting as long as mankind populate this planet. The motivation of the Franks, however, will not have been an ideological one. Here it was not about destroying the Roman culture, it was simply about the material, about plundering. Plundering is a good keyword. Fire traces in archaeological finds from this period clearly show that the city must have received an enormous amount of violence in its building structure for some time in the year 355. Especially the residential areas of the city, which largely consisted of single-story longhouses, will have suffered damage. Public buildings such as the early Christian assembly rooms, pagan temples which must surely still have existed, and official buildings will also have been subject to looting and burning. The fact that the Praetorium, as a symbol of Roman power on the Rhine, suffered damage should come as no surprise, but if the damage could be repaired quickly and afterwards, or the building had not suffered such serious damage after all. And what about the fort on the other side of the Rhine, near Cologne, the later city of Deutz? Well, for the year 355, it is also not so easy to give a clear statement, for the fort Deutz remained intact, 
It had no traces of destruction whatsoever on its foundation walls when it was excavated by archaeologists in the 19th and in the 20th century from this period. Perhaps the troops had been withdrawn directly before the attack of the Franks after the murder of Sylvanus. Even a mighty fortress is worth nothing if there is nobody there to man it. What is certain that it has fallen to the hands of the Franks. Concerning the bridge over the Rhine which connected Cologne with the Fort Deutz, it is also difficult to say whether the bridge was still intact there or had already been destroyed, so it wouldn't fall into enemy hands. As is often the case, the source situation is very difficult. For not only Cologne went up in flames in the turmoil, over 45 cities and settlements were conquered or destroyed in the region. Who were these Franks? What was their leader called? How did they live or reign in the city? Unfortunately, that is not known. As far as the rule in the city was concerned, I have a theory but I absolutely cannot prove it. However, it results from observations that can be observed later when the Franks became a significant power in Europe. Possibly they provide their military elite in their city. In the civilian sector, they would certainly have made use of the Roman provincial administration, which still existed. Why do we not know how the Franks ruled in Cologne after their successful conquest? Well, there is a reason for that. The empire strikes back. So, how did Rome react? Or oh, the government Rome, because it was now sitting in Milan and not in the capital of Rome anymore. Surprisingly, it did not take long for the news to reach the Roman imperial court. And this was not only because Milan, in the west of the empire, in the north of today's Italy, had already served as the seat of government. After all, winter was already approaching. By December 355 at the latest, Emperor Constantius II had been in the picture about the events in Cologne. The entire empire had been shocked. Of course, there were plenty of cities the size of Cologne in the empire, but everyone at the imperial court was aware of the immensely important position this border city held for the security of the entire Roman Empire. Now it had fallen to enemy hands. The northern gate of the Roman Empire in continental Europe was open wide. In November, Emperor Constantius II had actually planned to secure the Rhine border again after Sylvanus' involuntary death. It was clear to all contemporaries of that time that the Roman Empire could no longer be ruled by a single emperor. In order to prevent something like the elevation of Sylvanus a few months ago, leaving aside the fact that Constantius II had actively contributed to this through his paranoia, he appointed a family member named Julian as secondary emperor as so-called Caesar for Gaul. The fun fact that the Rhine border had fallen together with the Rhine metropolis Cologne, well, Constantius did not tell this to his relative Julian. Julian was virtually the last surviving male ancestor from the line of ancestors of Constantine the Great, well, besides Constantius II. All other male relatives had been systematically and gradually murdered or otherwise died after 337. Just to commission Julian to free Argal from the many invaders was a mammoth task. Perhaps Constantius feared Julian would not have been so enthusiastic about this honor as secondary emperor, 
and might even have refused. I don't think I need to mention what a refusal would have meant for Julian's physical integrity. For Constantius II, it was a win-win situation. If Julian managed to pacify Gaul and reconquer Cologne, it would be good for the empire. If he failed, well, then Constantius II would have to deal with one possible competitor less. So it happened that the newly appointed Caesar Julian only learned on his way north towards Gaul and the Rhineland that he had not received the complete job description when he was appointed by Constantius. Julian was selected only because of his family ties. I don't want to get lost in imperial Roman history again, but Julian was not really suited for the job on the paper. He had hardly had much experience as a politician or as a military man. He had preferred to devote his life to philosophy and this to such an extent that he had secretly turned away from Christianity and even turned back to the old pagan beliefs of Jupiter, Neptune and Juno. Already very dangerous at that time since pagan followers had to reckon with social exclusion in the meantime. So Julian kept his pagan faith hidden from the public. That was not so difficult for him, he was officially a baptized Christian after all. And as a philosophically interested person, he knew the Christian text almost by heart. The tide had just turned in the meantime. Now early Christianity was on the advance. And this only as a last clue. Julian was later to become a Roman emperor himself. And he was to be the exception, the only non-Christian ruler after Constantine the Great. Julian was to die a few years later in a battle against the Persians. Some say it was an enemy Persian soldier, but... Some sources claim that a Roman soldier of Christian faith threw the spear at his own, but pagan emperor. So much for that. But at the end of the year 355, Julian was just happy and cheerful. He would do his new job better than anyone back then could have anticipated. He went on his way to Gaul and Rhineland, but his way did not go straight to Cologne. Julian saw the securing of the western part of the empire on a larger level. There were parts of Gaul that had been devastated by enemy incursions, yes, but of course there were also enough areas that had been spared. Julian spent the first months of the year 356 recruiting enough provisions and above all enough troops. The moment comes again when I have to say how desperate a historian must be. With Amianus Marcellinus, who probably still stayed in Gaul at the time, we would actually have an excellent contemporary witness whose texts have been partly handed down to our time. He reports about the reconquest of Cologne. Well, but let's listen to him directly again, what he has to tell us. So in his book 16 about Roman history, chapter 3 and verse 1 to 2, I'm not really sure if that's the right way to quote him, but here we go. Quote, after this, meeting with no resistance, he determined to proceed to recover Cologne, which had been destroyed before his arrival in Gaul. In that district, there is no city or fortress to be seen, except that near Confluentes, a place so named because there the river Moselle becomes mingled with the Rhine. There is also the village of Rheinmagen, and likewise a single tower near Cologne. After having taken possession of Cologne, he didn't leave it till the Frankish kings began, through fear of him, to abate of their fury, 
when he concentrated a peace with them likely to be of future advantage to the Republic. In the meantime, he put the whole city into a state of complete defense. End quote. By the way, the place Confluentes is today's German city of Koblenz, a great place in the south of the Rhineland with also very rich history. The local fortress of Ehrenbreitstein and the place where the Moselle flows into the Rhine is always worth a visit and they have a great wine region there. Many several great Rhine, wine, wine regions were. That is hard to pronounce as a German. But back to our historian Marcellinus. As so often it is nice to have some information here. But there is so much left out again. How did Julian conquer Cologne again? By force? Did he storm the walls and slaughter all the Franks in the city? The nevertheless fast reconquest of Cologne by Julian lets us suspect something else. Probably it was not even that bloody. On the contrary, the Franks who had conquered Cologne probably took their legs in their hands when Julian's Roman army approached. Whereby Roman army really has to be put in quotation marks here. Because the late antique Roman army in this part of the world consisted almost completely of Germanic and often Frankish soldiers. Presumably, Julian's negotiation skills prevented a bloody conflict and further disputes in and around Cologne. The group of Franks that had conquered Cologne returned the city to the Roman Empire. However, the Franks themselves were now allowed to remain in the region around Cologne. Julian allowed them to settle as settlers. The Franks probably accepted the offer for the most part. In many places in the Roman province of Lower Germania, Frankish settlements arose in which the Franks settled on territory but as allies of the Romans, as so-called Federati. This means that they retained a large degree of autonomy within their communities. In this way, however, no profound Romanization of these Franks took place. What the Romans expected, however, was that they would provide troops and dedicate themselves to securing the border. So what happened here? Rome tried to secure its dwindling power in the border provinces of its empire by the targeted settlement of local tribes. After all these civil wars, the central power of the empire itself had no strength left for this. Thus, the ironic situation arose that Germanic tribes were now in the service of Rome, defending Rome's border against other hostile Germanic tribes. This was possible, of course, because most ancient peoples did not possess the concept of the nation-state. Something like a modern national idea was not to emerge until more than a millennium later. But let us hold on. Cologne is reconquered by Rome in the year 356. The Frankish rule had lasted only one year. A small Frankish intermezzo, so to speak, which will be the title of this episode. Whereby the reconquest is a little exaggerated, one rather agrees on a compromise. Rome's rule has been nominally restored, but the Franks are allowed to stay. However, they are also given local responsibilities. The tribes must take over the border security independently and with their own soldiers. With these Franks, I do not mean of course all the Franks that existed at that time in Central Europe, but simply the Franks that had remained permanently after the plundering of Cologne a year earlier. 
At the same time, the settlement of these Franks dissolved the inner political supra-regional connections of the Roman Empire. For what happens around Cologne also happens at the same time or shortly afterwards in the entire Western Roman Empire. Franks settle on the Lower Rhine, Frisians on the North Sea coast, Burgundians in the southeastern present-day France on the Italian border, and Alemanni on the Upper Rhine in present-day in southern Germany. The areas left by these tribes in turn invite other barbarian tribes to settle now in the areas abandoned by the Germanic tribes. Thus begins the central phase of late antiquity, but we will come to that another time. With the reconquest of Cologne by Rome and an increased settlement of Franks around Cologne, the part about Cologne ends here as far as this podcast episode is concerned. Because I had promised, I wanted to find out why Germanic tribes, in our case the Franks, attack the Roman territory at all. And in order to clarify that, you have to go to a higher level again. At first glance, this may seem to have absolutely nothing to do with our city of Cologne, but at the same time it had a major influence on local developments. So what now follows, I would call a little history between Germans and Romans. If you want to switch off here, then do so. Then we will see each other again in the next episode. But it was my personal concern to find out why the Franks planned the Rhineland. First only for quick prey, but then also to stay. Because also this podcast is not completely free from a certain tendency. A tendency that is due to the sources. Romans wrote texts. Germanic tribes did not. This does not mean that the Germanic peoples were uncivilized, but like many peoples, the Germanic tribes also possessed a culture that handed down the tradition more orally. As a result, after 2000 years, we have only the Roman perspective on history. And this, of course, is characterized by numerous prejudices, misunderstandings and contents that we would even call today a little bit racist in the modern sense. Therefore, really only here in this episode, a small excursion to the history between Romans and Germanic tribes in the form of small highlights. For example, the third episode of this podcast alone was devoted solely to the great Roman commander Caesar and his relationship with the Germanic tribes like our beloved Ubii. However, Caesar was not the first Roman to have contact with the Germanic tribes. It was actually his uncle Marius who around 110 BC stood in the way of the Germanic Cimbri and Teutons. And at this first meeting between those two cultures, it already became clear that the Romans were not prepared to talk at eye level. The two tribes had fled from their ancestral home on the North Sea coast of present-day North Germany and Denmark. Why do people flee? Well, the reasons then were no different than today. A storm tide is probably the most likely reason in research based on the reports in the Roman sources. Who travels today into this area in which 2100 years ago the Cimbri and Teutons settled, sees and feels like the storm tides of the North Sea, humans and above all the nature of this region, lastingly coined or shaped. Now it was very unpopular, even then, to accept a large number of refugees at once. The Cimbri and Teutons could not simply move to the neighboring region. In many places they had to fight their way free, as they often met hostile other peoples. 
and so they wandered through Central Europe for many years, until finally on their way to a new home, they came into the Roman sphere of power. Despite all the requests and negotiations to let them simply move on, the Romans showed cold toughness, what they regretted at first. By the time Caesar's uncle Marius took command, the Romans had lost three battles against the Cimbri and Teutons with such heavy losses that it led the then Roman Republic into a state crisis. Only Marius's army reform changed this. In two further battles, about 120,000 Cimbri and Teutons were massacred. The surviving 60,000 were sold into slavery, among them many women and children. Not a good start, not a good beginning of the Roman-Germanic relations. But then we have to talk briefly about Caesar again. For reasons of prestige and in order to be able to say that he had conquered all of Gaul, he made the Rhine the hard cultural border between the Gauls and the Germans. Especially on the Rhine, the boundaries between the two cultures were absolutely fluid and not clearly distinguishable. Germanic and Gallic people were certainly not aware themselves that they were two different groups, both in contrast to each other, but also that as a small Germanic tribe, you belong to a large ethnic group of THE Germans. The Romans invented that, basically. The conquest of Gaul deprived the peoples on the right bank of the Rhine of the opportunity to visit the more fertile areas of Gaul in the events of environmental changes or population growth. The Germanic tribes were imprisoned in the west and south. Unless, of course, they resisted this condition, which was done to a proven degree as we learned. And they were not always barbaric as they were described. Gauls, as well as Germanic tribes, had trade routes, central settlements, social systems, you name it. But it was the Romans who destroyed the trade and economic relations of Central Europe in particular. These suffered a real shock by the Roman conquest of Gaul by Caesar. A large Celtic and therefore barbaric city, whose name we unfortunately do not know but which was located in the present-day town of Manching near Ingolstadt in Bavaria, suddenly ceased to exist within a few years when Caesar's conquest cut off the trade routes to Gaul. This ruined this city with more than 6,000 inhabitants. The city was abandoned, disappeared from the map and was forgotten for a long time. And please, 6,000 inhabitants in this part of the world was an enormous number of people. This city also had a stone city wall and a planned settlement structure with straight streets. Doesn't sound at all as backward and as barbaric as the Romans always called the Germanic tribes, does it? Something like that required a certain amount of law and order there. And Caesar, like his uncle 60 years earlier, also showed himself to be an extremely hard-working genocidal murderer. Oh, you find the sentence too harsh about the great Caesar? Well, Caesar himself proudly called himself a genocidal murderer in this case. You can read about it in his own book about the Gallic War. Caesar's actions even then in Rome led to the respected senator Cato the Elder demanding that the Senate extradite Caesar to the Germanic tribes for this crime so he would receive an appropriate punishment. The Bructeri and Tancteri were also diligently slaughtered by Caesar, although they politely asked Caesar before whether they could settle in Gaul as Roman allies. 
the fact that the women and children were among the victims did not interest the power politician. Even in the Roman imperial period, we see how ignorant the Romans were with the Germanic tribes. Shortly before the Battle of Teutoburg Falls in the year 9, we have talked about in the episode about the Oppidum Obiorum number 4, the Roman governor Varus demanded tribute payments from many Germanic tribes on behalf of Emperor Augustus. But these demands were mostly demanded in gold coins. This precious metal was hardly naturally available in Germania, and therefore much more difficult to find than silver for example. This condescension of the part of the Romans was one of the reasons why the Germanic tribes felt that they were forced to lure the Romans into the deadly trap that we know as the Battle of the Teutoburg Forst, which in the medium term meant the end of Roman rule in Germania on the right bank of the Rhine. The young city of Cologne thus became a frontline city for 500 years. Unlike the Germanic tribes, most Gauls had been settled farmers with central settlements. They were much easier to integrate into the Roman way of life than the Germanic tribes. The Germanic tribes saw themselves as self-sufficient and had no problems to regroup or look for other fertile areas. When the Romans then made the Rhine their permanent border, they took evasive measures and deprived the Germanic people of their mobility. This could only lead to conflicts. In Cologne's neighboring province of Upper Germania to the south, the Romans even built a huge fortified border fortification on the right side of the Rhine in today's southwestern Germany. One can speak quite cynically of the first division of Germany between East and West, even if in another place and at another time, whereby to be honest this border was not a closed border with passports control. Barbaric migration was always possible, but only under the premise that the Roman administration also allowed it. If this happened without permission, Rome fought back with all its might. Well, as long as they could and did not sink into any further civil wars. On the one hand, these border fortifications on the Rhine were impressive. On the other hand, they also show Rome's inability to decisively defeat or integrate the Germanic tribes. The Roman historian Tacitus himself already took stock of the Germanic peoples in his work in the year 98. Very bitingly, he formulated roughly, quote, we have been defeating the Germanic tribes for 210 years. More triumphs have been celebrated over the Germanic peoples than they have been defeated. End quote. Since the Germanic tribes were extremely decentralized, you could not, as in Gaul, influence the fate of an entire region in a single decisive battle. Of course, the Romans took advantage of the fragmented structure of the Germanic tribes. Since there was never a sense of community among the Germanic peoples, it was absolutely no problem for a German from a certain tribe, let us say the Batavians, to fight against a Germanic Cheruscan. However, the constant exchange between Rome and the Germanic tribes led to the fact that they were able to benefit from Roman military tactics and technology for a long time. The conquest of Cologne by the Franks in 355 speaks volumes here. In the year 70, the Batavians had not even been able to lay siege to Cologne. Now, 280 years later, a Frankish army alone had not only successfully besieged Cologne, but also stormed and conquered it. This development of the Germans can be seen very clearly in two historians and their description of the Germanic tribes. We have already covered both of them in this podcast. One 
is Tacitus, who lived at the height of Roman power at the beginning of the 2nd century, and Ammianus Marcellinus, the late antique and quasi the last great Roman historian of the 4th century. The depiction of the Germanic trials, which never existed as a united nation, could not be more different in the works of these two authors. Tacitus, an aristocrat who mourned the old senate rule of the Roman Republic, saw in the Germans a people that was completely pure. Barbaric, yes. Natural, but free from the decadence of their own culture as with the Romans. And free from a tyrant who subjugated them. For nothing else was the empire of the Roman Empire for Tacitus. What is striking is the clear distance that Tacitus sees between the two cultures, the Romans on one side, the Germanic tribes on the other, both geographically and culturally. With Ammianus Marcellinus in the 4th century, things look completely different here. Germanic tribesmen held high posts in the Roman army. They provide large parts of the army in the western Roman part of the empire. Marcellinus himself was personally involved in a murder squad against the Frankish Roman counter-emperor Silvanus in Cologne. This naturally raises the question what had happened in the 250 years between Tacitus and Ammianus Marcellinus. How did it come about that the Germans, still considered foreign by Tacitus, were now the supporting pillars of the empire in the time of Marcellinus? Well, it is the irony of history that the Romans themselves played a large part in this. They themselves often paid large sums of money to the neighboring Germanic tribes to buy their loyalty. The sons of many Germanic nobles were sent to Rome and trained there, mainly military tactics. The Romans themselves possessed a powerful heavy infantry, but until the end of their empire they had been rather bad horsemen. Here they relied completely on non-Roman units, not infrequently Germanic horsemen. Caesar had already appreciated his Germanic cavalry. Of course, all this had consequences for the Germanic culture on the right side of the Rhine, which is not directly under Roman rule. The Roman payments made many Germanic chieftains rich, and he who was rich also became powerful, and he who was powerful gathered more and more people around him, and so he also became more and more powerful. But even if your tribe was often exposed to attacks by the Romans, then of course in the medium term the idea was born to ally with other Germanic tribes in order to better resist these attacks. Of course, as already explained in an earlier episode, it is not quite clear why Germanic federations like the Franks or the Alamanni came into being at some point in the 3rd century. So many of those small tribes of the Germans came together. But without the Roman influence, the fragmentation of the Germanic tribes would certainly have remained that way much longer. In the 4th century you do not only hear from German chieftains, no, now you begin to read that there are German Rex here and there. And Rex is Latin and means king. And a king is something way more powerful than a chieftain, and the Romans knew that, and that's why they start to call the German leaders kings and not chieftains anymore. The constant civil wars also result in the human resources of the Roman Empire being simply exhausted from the 3rd century onwards. While the Germanic tribes had only been an auxiliary troop in the Roman army until then, they became more and more the main component of the Roman army. As already mentioned, 
it will have been Gallic, Germanic and especially Frankish troops who under the command of the Roman commander Julian had reconquered Cologne from the Franks who had conquered and plundered Cologne a year before. Silvanus, for example, from one episode earlier had taken a Roman name as a Frank, but from this time we find in the Roman army sources numerous names of Roman commanders whose names are clearly Germanic. So much for this first, very simplified representation. By the way, I condensed all this from a great 18-hour long lecture series by the historian Kenneth W. Hall on Rome and the Barbarians. So at the end, let's talk about the Cologne Franks. The Franks themselves were Cologne's direct neighbors since the end of the 3rd century. This is also evident in the construction of the bridge and the fort in today's Deutz by Constantine the Great. Thus the Romans were fully aware in their reports that both structures were already in enemy Frankish lands. The Franks had emerged from the many small tribes known to us since the Gallic Wars of Caesar. Sugambri, Tengteri, and later even the Batavians were part of it. And, well, we will learn later on who else is part of it. They all lived a completely different lifestyle than the Romanized population on the other side of the Rhine, like in Cologne. This was also due to the Roman influence. They earned their living especially by growing food needed for the stationed Roman troops in the region. You may call this paradoxical that the free Franks, by the way, this is also the translation of the word Frank, the free, cultivated crops for their potential enemies and in the same breath they were happy to raid these customers. But that was the way it was. This high demand of Rome for food led to the fact that never really urbanization in non-Roman Germania on the right side of the Rhine took place as long as the Roman rule on the Rhine existed. Why should this be the case? If you earned enough to live as a farmer, why do you need to found cities? Of course, the standard of living of the Franks was not on the same level as that of an ordinary Roman like in Cologne. But even if I do not want to waste too many lines, I want to point out that here it is not simply the simple Rome is civilized and the Germanic tribes are barbarians. Just a few counterexamples. A Frank was not at all dirty. Every morning they washed their hair with a homemade soap. The hair and the beard, if you had one, were carefully groomed with a comb. Even the teeth were brushed with some wood splinters or stone dust. Of course, this was not really healthy for the teeth, but the teeth of all people in ancient times fell out early or were clearly blunted because the ground grain often contained the stone dust of the millstones. However, most Romans do not start the day in such a cultivated way like the Franks did. The Franks were farmers through and through. They kept cattle, mostly sheep, since this meat had milk and wool. And of course, they practiced extensive agriculture. As I said, potatoes did not exist in Europe for over a thousand years. Especially barley covered the calorie requirement. Meat was only available on holidays, if at all. So homegrown lentils were the most important source of protein. The Franks, like all Germanic tribes, settled mostly in smaller settlements along small watercourses such as lakes or streams to have enough water for cattle and agriculture. A settlement of the Franks usually had about two dozen houses. Each Frank was a member of a tribe, which in turn often allied or fought with the surrounding Frankish tribes. Nevertheless, it must be noted that the majority of the Franks were farmers. Only when they were lacking something, they would go on 
wanderings join together in small hordes and go on raids. This was especially the case when the weather was not quite right in harvest year. Then it was sometimes also the desire for high quality Rome products which you wanted to steal. Here too I found the historical perspective very one-sided. The Germans are consistently mentioned as invaders and often as aggressors. And uh, what did the Romans do differently? Well, they brought a highly developed civilization to many corners of the known world, but knocking on the door with love, this former farming village of Rome certainly did not conquer a huge world empire. In the future, we will be paying sufficient attention to the way of life of the Franks, because as I said, something tells me that they will still be somewhat important for Europe. The wealth of the Roman Rhineland sometimes attracted not only Frankish bands of robbers, however, it also attracted Frankish settlers who did not want to destroy, but to build something in the Roman provinces. This was also evident in the settlement of the Franks by Julian in this episode. Thus, it came about that already in the 3rd century, Frankish merchants settled permanently in Cologne and the Rhineland. Whoever managed to do so, of course, did so in a completely legal manner. Then there were the Franks who simply crossed the Rhine in phases of complete political instability of the Romans and settled in the area around Cologne. All the wars and raids had left behind many unoccupied and fertile fields and pastures. When the Roman rule in the region had returned, as for example after the end of the Gallic Empire, the Roman rulers grudgingly accepted the new settlers. After all, the Franks were much sought after to fill up the light rows of the Roman army, and of course, they also paid taxes. So much for the Franks of the 4th century. It is interesting that we know so little about the early Franks, yet they are so important for European history as we will soon learn. <sighs> that was once again an episode that went far beyond, far, really far beyond the scheduled 30 minutes, oh my. If you've been listening up to this point, I'm really glad about it, of course. Let's end here today. If you like this podcast, check out social media or my homepage, on my homepage, every episode has its own page with pictures and more backgrounds. And you can also find out how you can support the show. In the show notes, you can find the respective links. I would be happy about the rating of this podcast, hopefully with a good review. So, as always, thanks for listening, stay loyal to my content and my podcast, and until then, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>